want to sit at Your feet, Lord, and spend some time with You tonight. I pray, Lord, that You will transport our hearts and our minds to the Galilee so that as Jesus walked, we can walk with Him. I pray that You'll take us back to that place in time where You were expressing Yourself to the world. And I pray, Father, You will impact us now in this day. Not only by the things we learn tonight in our heads, but by the way Your Spirit molds and shapes our hearts. Because not only, Jesus, do we want to see You so we can know You better, we also want to see You so we can be more like You. You are our hero. You are the one we want to emulate. So may we see You tonight in even greater ways. Increase our faith, Father. And speak to His Holy Spirit in these words in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John chapter 5, verse 22 tells us, Jesus speaking says, Not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. When Jesus said that, He immediately blew away anyone's concept that Jesus was kind of a namby-pamby nice guy and God's the one to be afraid of. No, all the judgment is in the hands of the Son. Jesus said in John 5.27 that God gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Part of that authority, that earned authority by Jesus. Oh, He had authority as God in the heavens, but He earned a new authority, the authority to judge man because He became the Son of Man, as we talked about on Sunday, both God and man. So as the Son of Man, and because of what He did, He has all authority in heaven and on earth to judge. And judge He does. As we begin Matthew chapter 15, we find Jesus squaring off with the Pharisees and trouncing their traditions. I love when He does this. Chapter 15 of the book of Matthew, verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now note that, they came from Jerusalem. That's like an hour and a half, two hour drive from the Galilee. To walk it would take a number of days. So these guys are seeking out Jesus. They're looking for Him. They, they have an agenda. And they come all the way from Jerusalem up to the northern side of the Sea of Galilee to find Jesus and confront Him. They said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. This phrase, the tradition of the elders, you're going to see it throughout the Scriptures, especially in the Gospels. And when that phrase is used, the tradition of the elders, gang, it is not the law. It is, in fact, the tradition. It's the thing that's been built up. And as a matter of fact, back after the uh, Jews came out of Babylon, Babylonian captivity, there began a tradition of rabbis who would do commentary on both the Hebrew Scriptures and on Jewish social life. And as these rabbis taught... They developed what the Jews even today would call the oral law, or the oral tradition. And it was everything from how to wash your hands before a meal to how far you could walk on the Sabbath. 613 laws in the Torah were just not enough for these guys. They had to describe it and explain it. I even read it on one website this afternoon. One site where a Jewish person was talking about the 613 laws in God's law and saying they don't explain far enough for us to understand. Like when the Lord says, remember the Sabbath. Well, how are we supposed to do that? And so the rabbis began to teach and explain. And they developed commentary. But it was called the oral tradition. 
Because part of the teaching method of the Jews was to have a teacher who would speak orally until the student got it so well, so ingrained in his heart, he didn't need books. They didn't want the oral law, the oral tradition, the tradition of the elders to be written down. So they held off for for a long time, about 300 years. But around 200 200 B.C., a rabbi by the name of Judah the Prince began to write down the oral tradition. He wrote it out and he codified it so that it would all be, everything that had to do with the Sabbath would be in this area and everything that had to do with hand washing would be here and everything to do with each law would be in one specific area so a Jewish person could just flip through it, go right there and know what was required of them. It was called the Mishnah. The Mishnah led then to further commentaries, probably the most famous one, and a word you probably have heard more often than Mishnah, is the Talmud. There was the Jerusalem Talmud, there was also the Babylonian Talmud, and the Babylonian Talmud is the one most used today. So they took that oral tradition, the oral law of the elders, wrote it down, and gang, by the time Jesus came on the scene, according to the Talmud, quote, the words of the elders are weightier than the words of the prophets. Let this begin as a warning to us that the traditions of man will take over and bypass Scripture if we are not in the Word of God. This is what happens. This is what man does. We begin to try to explain, and I tell you, a lot of you take notes as we go through Bible study, and that's fantastic. Don't you ever, ever refer to the notes over the Word itself. Because the same danger there. Oh, well, Pastor Rick said this. Yeah, well, Pastor Rick can be a real dork. Okay? And so we refer to Scripture and we lean on and we study the Word. There are two things going on here regarding the traditions of the elders. One that they bring up and one that Jesus mentions. What they bring up is they're upset that the disciples, the apostles of Jesus, are not washing their hands when they eat bread. They came all the way from Jerusalem to point this out. What were they, knee freaks? I mean, my mom always wanted me to wash my hands, but I don't know that she'd walk from Jerusalem to tell me to do that. Two things going on here. The first one is rabbinical hand washing. The tradition of the elders, it's fascinating to just sit down and read some of these things. The tradition of the elders, the the mission of the the Talmud, they explained hand washing needed to be done this way. It was very precise. Every good Jewish person, first thing they woke up in the morning, had to wash their hands. The way they did it first was they would take their hands, palms down, and they would take an eggshell full of water per hand, pour it over the hand, and let it trickle from the wrist down over the fingers and then onto the ground. Once it hit the ground, that water was defiled. And they do that with both hands, and they would do that three times. Then flip the hands over. And you would pour on the wrist going down over the fingertips again because the fingertips needed to get it because the fingertips got more defiled than the palm of the hand. Why, I don't know. But you would do this three times. Then you could dry your hands and eat. A truly religious Jew would do this before every single meal and often at other times during the days. And the real nuts, the guys who really wanted to go all the way out as far as they could, remember the Essenes? Those guys who lived in Qumran, the the Dead Sea Scrolls, that community of guys, they did full body washings before every meal, before they sat down to write or to copy the Torah law or the Talmud or the Mishnah. Every time they did anything, they had to go into these baptismal pools, fully dunk themselves and come out and dry off. I guess they were clean. 
But this was the tradition that had to be followed. In Mark chapter 7, which is a parallel passage to what we're studying tonight, it tells us the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. And that was just one tiny aspect of the tradition of the elders. Was it a cleanliness is next to godliness thing, or was there something more to it? Gang, as I read this, I believe it was fear-based. That the washing of hands, many of the tradition of the elders, were based in fear and not based in faith. What were they afraid of? One writing says this, again, I quote, They were afraid of an evil spirit whose name was Shibta. Listen to this. Shibta is an evil spirit which sits upon men's hands in the night. And if any touch his food with unwashed hands, that spirit sits upon that food. And if they eat it, the spirit can get inside them. And it's dangerous. So to avoid, that is the reason behind the hand washing in the tradition of the elders. Fear that a tiny demon that sits on the fingertips might get into your mouth. Do you realize how many spiders you swallow at night just because your mouth is open? I am pretty convinced that if a demon wanted to crawl in your mouth, it could do it without sitting on your fingertips and waiting to get on the food and be swallowed that way. You know, thankfully, we're not superstitious about, about demon possession like that in the church. Or are we? I've asked you this before. Do you fear demons? Are you worried about them getting in? Do you find yourself freaking out at times because you think the demonic is, is on the loose here? Now, listen, I, I'm, not, I'm not making fun of the spiritual realm because there are very true things that go on and there are demons and they are at work in the world. But you have no reason to be afraid of them. Not if you have the name of Jesus Christ, the authority of the King over your head What are you afraid of? Romans 8.38, Paul says, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm going to add something to that. Please don't write this down in Scripture. There is one thing that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's you. You can separate yourself. But there is nothing in all creation that can come between you and the love that God has for you. We have nothing to fear. Well, the Pharisees, again, traveled all the way from Jerusalem to call out Jesus' apostles on hand washing. This was their big thing. They weren't challenging Jesus' doctrine. They couldn't because it was perfect. They weren't challenging His miracles or His healing. They challenged that His apostles would sit down and grab a burger and not wash their hands. Verse 3. So Jesus responds, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? See what he's doing is immediately turning it around. You're making a big deal out of tradition instead of the Word of God. He says, For God said, quote, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say... Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father or mother. 
And by this, watch this, by this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your traditions. What's he talking about here? The Pharisees had another thing, another tradition that they followed. It was a giving tradition, a practice in giving. The phrase there that's given to God was that in verse 5, that phrase is in the Hebrew the word korban. And korban was a word that was used by the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders that said this, they could call something in their house something they owned korban. They could call their corvette korban. And in so doing, that is something that now has been given to God. Consecrated to God. It's God's. Meantime, they could still use it. But the people who could not get their hands on it would be their parents. And what the Jewish leaders would do with this korban rule is they would call all of their investments, all of their property, all of their things, they'd say, that's korban. So I'm sorry, I know my parents are aging and I know they could really use my help, but I've already given this stuff to God. And yet they continue to use it in their daily lives. The tradition of the elders was so often man's way of finding loopholes and getting around the law rather than living by the law. Jesus hones in on the key issue again in verse 6. Let me read it one more time. He says, By this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. And I hope beyond hope, gang, that the one thing I never hear from Jesus is, Rick, you were just too traditional. You were so focused on tradition that you missed what I was doing. Tradition, gang, is religion. Religion is tradition. It's bound up in the same thing. It's a heavy weight that gets put on people's shoulders that people put on each other's shoulders. And the problem with the Pharisees was religion was expressed in their traditions. A couple of things to note about religion. Number one, religious tradition always involves addition. Tradition involves addition. What do you mean by that? I was thinking about the fact that non-believing people rarely take issue with the Bible because of the Bible. When people say, oh, I don't believe in the Bible because it's you know, contradictory or whatever, well, they, ha- they probably haven't even read it. They probably just heard that somewhere. And as I've shared with you before, it's kind of a smokescreen. It's a dodge. The reality is that the Word is not the problem. Religion is the problem. People will look at Christians, and we'll just talk about ourselves. You can do this with any religion, but people will look at Christians and they'll say, Man, I don't want to do that. If that's what the Bible says, I don't want to be that way. And the reality is what they're looking at is probably not something the Bible said. It's it's holding up man instead of looking to the truth. The problem is not with what God wrote and requires, it's with what man requires by rote. It's with what we say has to be done. It is amazing to me when you start to strip away all the traditions and you just get down to the most simple things. The Word of God, prayer, worship. People like that. People get drawn to that. There's something refreshing in that. But when we start to add tradition upon tradition and it gets weighty and difficult, man, that's what I don't want. That's what people don't want. That's what exhausts us in our lives. The problem's not with what God has already given us, it's with what man has piled on top of it. And that's what it means to invalidate the Word of God by your traditions. You're saying that the way you do it is more important than what the Lord has given. Man elevates his ideas, his applications, his great learning and prolific opinions to a place, well, the Pharisees did anyway, that was above God's Word. That, that shocks me. 
I mean, I knew they were bent on their traditions. I had no idea they actually believed their traditions were greater than the Word of God itself. Psalm 138.2, I've quoted many times. You have magnified your Word according to or equal to your name. Your Word is as important as your name, Lord. Not Mishnah, not Talmud, not any other commentary on the original Word of God spoke through the prophets by God. As Peter said in 2 Peter 1.20, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's the legitimacy of Scripture. Now I've got a big stack of commentaries that I will use to try and understand as I'm studying and, and, and see what's going on in Scripture. But I'll tell you what, it's a dark day in Rick's office when the commentary replaces the Scripture. Scripture is most important. Jesus was constantly taking people back to the only standard God has ever given, written down, and that's His Word. And Jesus' response to the Pharisees here, rather than even answering their question, which, as far as I'm sure Jesus was concerned, it was a bogus question, why don't your apostles wash their hands? Hey man, God made dirt and dirt don't hurt. I'm not even going to address this tradition of hand washing because it's so silly. But what I will do, and what Jesus says here, what He does is He goes directly back to the Word of God. Why do you break the commands of God? Honor your father and mother. He quotes Exodus chapter 20. He says... What about he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death? How serious is it that you honor your parents? He gets that from Leviticus chapter 20, verse 9. And going on in verse 7, Jesus quotes directly from the book of Isaiah. He says, I love this, he says, You hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Now this quote comes from Isaiah 29. Listen to the context of this quote. Let me read this to you. Isaiah 29 and verse 13. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their words, and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold... I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelous, and the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of their discerning men will be concealed. In other words, they're not going to get it. If you want to follow your traditions and your learning and your skillful thought, you're going to miss the whole thing. And the worst thing a person can do with the Word of God is add to it. That's a dangerous game. The Word speaks against adding to the Word. And yet we do it so often. I mean, I was convicted reading through this and thinking, how often do I add things and pile upon what God is saying that is actually so simple? He's saying, love each other. Love me. In fact, everything else kind of comes back to those two. And we start to figure out these ways of loving God, these things that we need to do to please Him, we add to it. Even the early church had their problems with this. Paul had to correct the church in Galatia. The entire letter to the Galatian church is because they were adding to. They were piling on the traditions of Judaism on top of everything that was already given that was good. And Paul says in Galatians 1.6, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel 
which is not really another, only there are some who are disturbing you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Why is Paul so serious about this? Because the gospel, gang, is God's grace. The message of the gospel is you are saved not because of yourself, but because of Jesus and what He did. But when we add to that, when we pile on top of grace, we make grace a heavy thing. And it was never given to us as a heavy thing. It is given to us as freedom. Freedom from law. Freedom from tradition. Freedom from our own sin. Which is evident because we can't keep the law. So the Pharisees were big on addition. Religion, tradition, it always is big on addition. Partially because they were afraid. And partially because, secondly, religious tradition emphasizes appearance. The emphasis is not on the heart. The emphasis is on the outward behavior, the outward look. Jesus' emphasis is always on the heart. Time and time again, Jesus goes back to the heart. He goes back to what's internal, what's inside, what is unseen, where God does His best work in us. Not the outside, but the inside. It's funny to me, the English language even recognizes the truth of religion being an outward thing. And that we have a word that describes hypocritical self-righteousness. If you want to know what the word is for hypocritical self-righteousness, it's pharisaical. This whole entire people group who in their day were the Pharisees and proud of it. Today, their name is a word for hypocrite in the English language. Matthew 23, verse 25, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. You know, I I think about the contrast there in the Galilee of the people who are standing around and, and spending time with Jesus. The people who were drawn to Jesus and just loved what He had to say. The people who never really had a problem with Him were the outcasts and the lowly. Even the blatant sinners, they rarely had a problem with Jesus, even when He spoke the hard, cold truth. Sinners were okay with that. The people who had the biggest problem, the biggest enemies of Jesus, were the religious Pharisees, the traditionalists. And that's not the place we want to go. Well, after Jesus called the crowd to Him, verse 10, He said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. And then the disciples came and said to Him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? (laughs) I just love these guys. Listen, put yourself in the place of Jesus' closest followers. You know, think about what's happening here in terms of, of the culture of the day. The Pharisees represented the, the best of the best of Judaism, at least on the out, outward appearance. These were the guys that were impressive. And these guys had come all the way from Jerusalem. I mentioned again, and Jesus' followers, if you were one of them, what would you be thinking? I'd be thinking, hey, the Pharisees are here. Wow, Jesus is really, he's really making some distance here. We're really getting the word out. The Pharisees are showing up. This is great. And now he's offended them. Lord, did you know you just said something that 
I don't know if you should have said that. I mean, for, for these followers of Jesus, man, they see the Pharisees as these standard bearers. These are the guys who you'd want to endorse your brand of Judaism. These are the guys you'd want them signing off on it, saying, yeah, this Jesus is great. You need to go listen to his teaching. He's wonderful. And Jesus messes that up. And he offends them. And these guys, they come and they call down and they shame the apostles. What are these guys doing with their dirty hands? So what does Jesus do? Does he, does he placate them and offer a congenial apology? Oh, I'm so sorry. Apostles, you really ought to be washing your hands. You really ought to take care of that. No, as we've seen, Jesus goes right into their face. I love that. Where we might try and calm the situation down, Jesus amps it up. At least with the religious guys. And he goes right after them. And not only does he go after them, but then he turns to the crowd and explains what's just happened. By saying, it's not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth, this defiles the man. And of course the Pharisees were offended because it's what came out of their mouths that was so evidently religious and cold. Jesus pulls no punches. Verse 13, he answers his apostles and he said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. He's talking about the Pharisees. Don't worry about them, guys. He says, they are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. That is some harsh judgment. Saying these guys are blind and they are leading the blind. Anyone who follows these guys is just as blind as they are and they're all going to end up in a pit. Which pit? The pit of hell. Because tradition will never get you into the Father's presence. By the way, when he makes a comment here, every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. I think he's making reference back to a recent parable he had just told, the wheat and the tares. And every plant that God didn't plant, that's planted by the enemy, it's going to get uprooted. And what did Jesus say would happen to the uprooted plants? They're going to be burned. It's very serious judgment that Jesus is laying out here. I love how he stands up for his apostles. And that's something not to be missed here. While he is going after the Pharisees, he's also standing for his boys. He gets right in the middle, and he defends them, and he defends you. Just talking with someone about this this very thing this morning. You know what? You follow Jesus, and he will defend you. He stands for his people. Matthew Henry said this. He said, While we stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, He will be sure to bear us out in it. You cling to grace. You live by grace. You show grace to other people regardless of how it comes back to you. But be sure of this one thing. Christ Jesus will be your defense. He will stand up for you. Just as He does for the apostles right here. Well, verse 15, Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. Now, I don't know about you, but my first reaction when I read that line was, What parable? And I went back and I said, Did Jesus just tell a parable? And I, and I tried to find the parable that Jesus told. You know what? He didn't tell a parable. When Peter says, What parable did you tell us? He, he didn't tell a parable because there's no parable here. Peter assumes that Jesus was speaking in a parable when Jesus was just speaking the blatant truth. Peter kind of missed it because it was harsh for Jesus. For him to be that blunt toward a people is is unusual. 
And Jesus gently corrects Peter and He says to him, verse 16, Are you still lacking in understanding also? (laughs) Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? Thanks Jesus for the biology lesson. What are you saying? And He says in verse 18, But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Oh, there He goes. Jesus goes right back to the heart. This is where Jesus is concerned. The heart. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. And those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Note that list, by the way. Evil thoughts, verse 19. Murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slander. Guess what? You made the list. Whoever you are sitting here tonight, I guarantee you at some point in your life, you've done something on this list. This is the junk that comes out of the heart. This is why we need Jesus to wash the heart. This is why the most important thing, and hear me on this fellowship, the most important concern we can have as brothers and sisters in Christ is each other's hearts. Where's your heart? How is your heart with the Lord right now? What can I do as a brother or sister to help your heart? I know you've messed up over here. Guess what? So have I. And there's not a single thing any one of us in this room tonight have done that is any worse than anything the rest of us have done. Do you understand what I'm saying? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's get out of the judgment seat. Let Jesus sit there. Because our judge is a graceful judge who is concerned about cleansing the heart. That's where he goes. Be careful of judging the heart of anyone you think might be on this list for fear that it will turn on you. Jeremiah 17.9 We read this over and over. I'm going to read it again. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? But the Lord says in verse 10 of Jeremiah 17, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Jesus is always more focused on the inward heart than he is about the legalistic issues of tradition or the law. Well, that's the Pharisees. Part two of the study is what I would call puppy dog faith. Verse 21. So Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. Now... Earlier in Jesus' ministry, we made a comment in the study from Matthew that there's a kind of a turning point where Jesus turns from Israel because Israel has rejected him. But this is very significant because it's the first time now that he steps outside of the region. Jesus now takes his ministry into Tyre and Sidon, which is Gentile territory to the north of Israel. This is not Israel land at all. It's not even close. He goes quite a ways up to these places that today are in Lebanon, Tyre and Sidon. And it tells us that... Well, wait a minute. Let me say this. I, I think the apostles may have been confused about this. The fact that he goes up there, because it was just a few chapters back in Matthew 10, where Jesus sent the apostles out. Do you remember what he said to them about their mission? Do not go into any of the territory of the Gentiles. 
Quote, Matthew 10, verse 5, Don't go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He makes it very clear that he comes to Israel. But now, he heads up to Tyre and Sidon, verse 22. And a Canaanite woman from that region, so not a Jewish woman, this would be an outsider, a non-believer, she began, she came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. I have that underlined in my Bible. This is unusual. This is a woman in pain and distraught that her daughter is possessed. Lord, help me, Lord, please, son of David. And Jesus ignores her. Does that seem uncharacteristic to you? Read on. It gets worse. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away. She keeps shouting at us. <laughs> but he answered and said, verse 24, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And I wonder if Peter thought, Good, we can be rid of this woman. And I wonder if James was going, All right now, send her away. Verse 25. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ow! At first he ignores her, and now he slams her. This is not, this is not the Jesus I thought I knew. What's going on here? She persists. Okay, before I get there, it's a great story because it shatters that, that flimsy, false, flippant image that we sometimes have of Jesus. That kind of, oh, He's always just sweet as pie. He's always just, you know, He's a special Savior. <laughs> he is doing something here. And He's doing it His way and it is exactly what needs to be done. Don't miss this. He's doing what needs to happen. He doesn't just ignore her because He's being cold-hearted. He is waiting. He doesn't say it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs to slap her in the face. First of all, to understand this, you've got to understand the symbolism of what Jesus is saying. The children refers to Israel. The bread is Jesus Himself. He calls Himself in John chapter 6, the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. And it's not right to take the bread from the children and throw it to the dogs. Now, if you've read this verse before and thought, oh, I'm just not going to spend a lot of time here because I can't believe Jesus just called her a dog. You know, I called a girl that one time in high school and got slapped. The dogs means Gentiles. And to push it a little further, it was a Jewish curse word really for Gentile. They would call them the Gentile dogs. It was a put-down. Well, not exactly. Matthew chapter six, verse 7, verse 6, Jesus said, Do not give what is holy to dogs. And do not throw your pearls before swine, or they'll trample them under your, their feet, and they'll turn and tear you to pieces. And when He says dogs there, that is the word that's a, that's a put-down. In Revelation 22.15 it says, Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and immoral persons and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. And that's that rough word for dog. That's the, boy, this is, this is the scroungy, mangy mutt. So I read that and I think, is this what Jesus thinks of the Gentiles? Wait, there's a subtlety here. Because as much as that word dogs is a derogatory term that Jews use for Gentiles... The term, as translated in the Greek, is kuon. 
Kuon, K-U-O-N, if you're writing that down. But the word Jesus uses here that we just translate dogs is literally Kunarion. Kunarion, which means puppy. Little dog. It is an affectionate term of the word dog for a household pet. For a puppy. And so it's not quite as harsh as maybe we thought it was at first. When Jesus says it's not right to take the bread from the children and throw it to the dogs, he's saying it's not right to take the bread from the children. You can get the picture of a family around a table. You don't take the kid's dinner and give it to Reggie. You know, that wouldn't be right. You feed the kids first. But still, this may be a little difficult to swallow. What's he doing here? Gang, he's not trying to demoralize this woman. Jesus is drawing out her faith. That's why he doesn't answer her at first. He waits. Give her a chance to be persistent. Give this woman an opportunity to persevere a little bit. See, I want to rescue people. When someone's struggling their faith, man, I want to jump in there as fast as possible and go, let me give you the answer so it's all okay. Sometimes Jesus, sometimes God is absolutely silent. Because He is drawing out your faith. He wants you to take one more day and wrestle. One more week and struggle. One more month. We're still waiting on our, on our adoption. And it's not moving as fast as it's supposed to move. Same with the Adelites. We're in the same boat. We're waiting and we're waiting and it was supposed to be in December. It was supposed to be by Christmas. I'll tell you something. God is teaching our family something about faith. He's not being silent any more than Jesus was ignoring the woman. He's just waiting so He can draw out her faith. And verse 27, look at how she responds. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to him, Oh, woman, gune is the word, and it is an affectionate, honorable word for woman. It's the same word that Jesus uses for His own mother. Gune. Oh, woman. He says, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Jesus waited for this woman to do two things. He waited for her to put away pretense. Notice the first thing she says when she comes to Him. Have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David. That is a Jewish term, and she is not a Jewish person. Now, I may be taking this a little further than than I should go here. But she is speaking religious phraseology. And that never impresses the Lord. Son of David! It's like, where'd you get that? You know, it would be like me going down to the south, maybe to Kentucky to preach, and all of a sudden talking in an accent. You know, because I think it will help you understand me better. You like that? I can work on that. You know what I realized, Joe? All you have to do to have a southern accent is just get lazy. You just relax and you smile a lot. That's that's it. She says, Son of David, it was a popular messianic title among the Jewish people. They often called Jesus Son of David when they began to believe He was Messiah. Son of David is, is the messianic term. She cries this out, but see how she changes when He says nothing. And when he makes the comment about Israel, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, she comes and bows down, verse 25, and says, Lord, help me. Now, this is a woman who is just speaking from her heart. She's not using a religious phrase. Just help me, God, help me. 
That's the prayer. Les said this a few weeks back when he was talking about prayer. There are times when people in their lives are so distraught, they just say, Oh, God! And they're not cursing. They're crying out to a God they know is there. They're just reaching as far as they can, and it's not religious, and it's not pretentious. It's just, it's just my heart. Jesus allows this woman to get to that place. That is awesome. Lord, save me. But the second thing He waits for her to do is He waits for her to put the plan in perspective. He waits long enough to make sure that she understands something, and that is that the Gospel first goes to Israel, and then goes to the Gentiles. As Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And Jesus, as we've seen in Matthew, came to the Jews first, came to Israel first to fulfill the promise. And when Israel rejected and rebelled, then He went to the Gentiles. And as Paul talks about in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and I was going to go there, we're not going to do it tonight, read those three chapters, three of the most important chapters in the entire New Testament. Romans 9, 10, and 11, where Paul explains the whole plan. God first comes to Israel, Israel rejects, so He spreads it out to the whole world to save all of us, and then comes back around at the end and goes back to Israel to save the remnant and fulfill every promise He ever made. But Jesus wants this woman to get it. It is one of the things Paul says, I don't want you to be misinformed about this. It is one of four times that Paul says that. Incredibly important to understand Israel first, Gentiles second. And the Canaanite woman gets it. Okay, I know I'm not an Israelite, and I know you've come to them first, but can I have the leftovers? If something falls off the table, that is good enough for me. And that's my dog Reggie at the table. He is the happiest little thing if a crumb falls. Cheryl doesn't like me to feed him from the table because she thinks it teaches him to beg. i got news for you. He's already a beggar. <laughs> this is in the breed, I think. But he just loves it. He, is, he doesn't get upset that he doesn't get my entire plate. If I hand him a french fry, he just goes off his tail wagon and this is where this woman is at. This little puppy... This woman shows great faith by saying, you know what, I'll take whatever you give me, Lord. I think that's a great place for our faith to land. I don't have to have it all, Jesus. I'll just take whatever you have for me. Even if it's leftover, that's good. That's good. I'll, I'll take that. And God says in Jeremiah 29.13, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And this woman comes to the place of expressing a real, authentic, personal faith. She calls him Master. And again, he calls her Gune Woman. A term of affection and endearment. That's what this story is about. Jesus is drawing out this woman's faith and delivering her daughter at the same time. Verse 29 third and final story in this in this chapter departing from there Jesus went along by the sea of Galilee and having gone up the mountain he was sitting there I want to point out where there is this is in the region of the Decapolis I'll come back to that in just a second large crowds came to him bringing with him those who were lame crippled blind mute and many others and they laid them down at his feet and he healed them So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified, watch this phrase, they glorified the God of Israel. Why is it written that way? Because Jesus is not in Israel. 
This is, in this verse, we know this from the next verse, that this was three days these people were gathered around Jesus. And all the Bible tells us about these three days is it was healing one after the other. Non-stop. Lame guy healed. Blind guy healed. Mute guy singing. You know, lame woman dancing. Demon-possessed guy in his right mind. One after the other after the other for three solid days. Nothing but non-stop healing. Can you even imagine? And the disciples at this point have got to be freaking out because all the people being healed there, they're in the region of the Decapolis. Mark chapter 8 tells us that. He's in the Decapolis, which means the ten cities, and it is Gentile territory. And here we have the largest healing of any, at least sustained healing, of any time in Jesus' ministry that we can see in Scripture. Three solid days of it, and it's not even in Israel. It's in the region of the Gentiles. Now you might say, well wait, it says that he went along by the Sea of Galilee. Yes, but he's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And you need to understand, even today, the Sea of Galilee divides Israel and Syria and Lebanon. Not Lebanon, I guess it's further up north. But the Sea of Galilee, that's a dividing line. It was back in the day. And to be on the eastern shore in that time was to be out of Israel proper. And so Jesus is outside in Gentile territory. And again, I think this is purposeful. Mark 7.31, talking about the same thing, says he went out from the region of Tyre, where he healed the woman's daughter that we just read about, went out from the region of Tyre, came through Zidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. And I think it was on purpose. Matthew is showing us that Jesus is now expanding his ministry from the Jews first, to the Gentile second. And that's why I believe it says they glorified the God of Israel. They were so impressed with Jesus and they knew He was a Jew and they knew He came to the Jews and yet all this healing was going on so they were like, wow, this is the right God. Praise the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Praise the God of Israel. He was not originally their God but they are now streaming to faith in Israel's God through Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's how it works in the world today. That's how people get saved is by seeing Jesus. And they will then praise the God of Israel. Verse 32. So Jesus called His disciples to Him and He said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with Me for three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to Him, Where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And a a few small fish. Starting to sound familiar, gang? And He directed the people to sit down on the ground, and He took the seven loaves and the fish, and giving thanks, He broke them and started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. Glory be. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full, And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadon or Magdala. Okay, what's happening here, and this is amazing to me, there are a lot of commentators and Bible scholars who, in looking at this passage, say it's just a retelling of what we saw happen in Matthew 14. It's the same story. It only happened once. And the reason they give for believing that it only happened once is pretty flimsy. They ask this question, why would the apostles question Jesus' ability to feed 4,000 when He had just recently fed 5,000? 
It's got to be the same story. Otherwise, the apostles are idiots. I go with the idiot philosophy here. Because it is so much like human nature, isn't it? How quickly do we forget the great things God has done in our lives? Now, there are some other reasons why I believe this is a completely different story. Do a quick comparison. In Matthew chapter 14, 5,000 men were fed. In Matthew 15, 4,000 were fed. In Matthew 14, it was five loaves and two small fish. In Matthew 15, it was seven loaves and a few small fish. The numbers are not adding up. Matthew 14, people sat on the grass. There's an implication there that it was springtime. In Matthew 15, notice he had them sit on the ground. And the word ground there literally means kind of desolate, hard, rocky ground. It's probably summertime by then. Matthew 14, Jesus is in Bethsaida, which is on the north side of the Galilee. Matthew 15, he is in the Decapolis on the east side of the Galilee. So the location is different. In Matthew 14, the people, after seeing this miracle, the people of Israel wanted to make him their king. In Matthew 15, we see no such request. And in Matthew chapter 14, 12 baskets are left over. In Matthew 15, 7 baskets are left over. 12 baskets were left in Matthew 14. In the miracle that was for Israel, 12 baskets were left. How many sons of Israel were there? 12. Because Jesus was providing for Israel. And I think it was a sign that Jesus would provide He would make provision for Israel. How many baskets are left over when Jesus is in the Decapolis in Gentile region? Seven, which is the number in the Bible of completion, indicating that God's provision would be complete. Not just for the Jewish people, but for all people. They're two completely different stories. Furthermore, Matthew 16, as the apostles were trying to figure out what Jesus meant, He's going to say, and we'll get to this next week, he'll say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and they're confused about what he's saying. He corrects them, and he says this, Matthew 16, 9. Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000? How many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000? How many large baskets full you picked up? Jesus himself declares these were two separate events. You see how simple it is to know the truth when you just look at the Scripture and don't try and go to a commentary? It's right there before our very eyes. So were the apostles just idiots? Again, I have two theories on this. I think one is maybe a memory issue. Maybe they really did just forget. I mean, Jesus did a lot of miracles. Maybe they kind of got confused or, or they just weren't thinking about it. You might say, come on, Rick, who would forget that? Israel. Who could possibly forget the Red Sea? And yet, how quickly were the people rebelling against God? Who can forget all of the fantastic miracles of the rescue out of Egypt, and yet they couldn't even make it into the promised land because they had no faith? And I point this out to say, gang, miracles miracles are not the stuff that that faith is made of. Miracles are wonderful. Miracles are promised and given by God, but they do not build our faith. You want to know what builds faith? What you're doing right now. You want to know what else builds faith? Praying. But miracles don't do it because we have selective memory and we are forgetful. What was the last great thing God did in your life? Do you remember it? Do you remember the last big thing 
that he did that was fantastic? And so why, if you know that God has done good things in the past in your life, and let me put this on myself, why, if I know He's done these great things, why am I worried about this adoption right now? Have I forgotten when He fed me before? Have I forgotten the fantastic things that God has already done in my life? What am I worried about? So maybe we shouldn't be so harsh with the apostles that they would forget what's going on here. Gang, we don't need fresh miracles every day to sustain our faith. What we need is fresh faith grounded and nurtured and grown in the Word of God. That will make you solid in your belief. Luke 16.31 Jesus is giving the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, but He makes this statement. He says, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, which is the Hebrew Scriptures, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Because the miraculous is not what charges a faith is not what grows and strengthens a faith. Psalm 119.49 Remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your word has revived me. I think there's one other possibility that's probably more likely although it's a little harsher than just a memory issue and that is a location issue and it's the apostles just couldn't believe that Jesus was going to feed a multitude in Gentile country. I'll believe he'll feed 4,000 Jews because, you know, it's our people. Got to feed the peeps, you know. I cannot believe that he would feed all these Gentiles. Send them home. It's the location. We can even handle the Lord giving that woman up in, you know, Tyre. We can handle him giving her some crumbs. That was cool. That was kind of a gentle, nice thing for him to do. But to feed 4,000 Gentiles... I can't believe Jesus would do that. A miracle that big has to only be for Israel, right? Do we ever do that in our faith? we ever say, you know, I believe Jesus works back here in the promised land. I'm just not sure He will do it out here in Outsiderville. I believe that Jesus worked in my life when I was faithfully attending church. I believe Jesus was at work in my life when I was reading the Word every day and I was having quiet time and I was praying and I was singing His praises. I I know God worked in my life then. It's just right now where I'm kind of slidden back and I haven't pulled my Bible out in a while. Now, Now is the time I just, I don't know that God would work. You know what the problem with that kind of thinking is? It's basing God's miracles and His goodness on our behavior. And that's not how it works. His goodness never relies on my goodness. His goodness relies on Him. He does what He does because He is a gracious God, not because I happen to have shown up in church on that Sunday morning. That's not the only time God works. And we think He can't care for our needs when we're on the outside. Jesus proves right here He cares for our needs wherever we are. By the way, why did Jesus feed the people here in Decapolis? Verse 32 tells us, I feel compassion. He didn't just ache for Israel. He was aching for the Gentiles and it had nothing to do with the Jews or the Gentiles. It had everything to do with the person of Jesus Christ and who He is. Again, don't miss the leftovers in both stories. The 12 baskets in Matthew 14 are Israel's portion. Seven baskets in Matthew 15 show the complete portion enough for everybody who comes in faith. For God so loved the world. You know it, right? 
that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank You for being unpredictable, at least to my mind. Thank You for doing everything that's necessary to bring us to our complete portion. Thank You for laying out before us the the words. I I thank You for Matthew writing these down and the Holy Spirit for the, the inspiration. But Jesus, we praise You simply for being who You are. And we praise You for Your grace and Your mercy. And as we prayed Sunday, I pray again for this body. Father, make us a merciful and graceful and loving people. Just like Jesus. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.